pleasant good morning to each and every one of you, and I hope this class video finds you all well and healthy and safe. We thank you for tuning in to our website, www.godsredeemed.org. This is the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, located here in Murfreesboro at 2091 Pitts Lane, and would be happy to have you join us on Sunday morning at 1030 for a regular worship service, or on Wednesday evening uh, for our midweek Bible study. You are more than welcome to uh, attend. There are instructions for each of us uh, who attend, and so if you would read those while you're here on the website, uh, you'll be prepared to uh, come and join us in worship and in study. We are looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the epistle that Paul wrote to them shortly after he had established the church, after he had worked and labored with the church at Corinth for about a year and a half. They had gotten off on the wrong foot. They had become a congregation of disorder. They had become a congregation of selfishness. Uh, and there were other things that were going on which were sinful that the brethren were allowing to continue, and not only allowing them to continue uh, without uh, going to the brother and asking him to repent of those things and, if necessary, conduct uh, church discipline on him, but they were being puffed up about it. Today, uh, as we began last week, we're going to look at Paul's answer to this letter that they had written to him in chapter 8. Uh, we studied last week they had written him concerning meats that were sacrificed to idols, whether or not they could participate uh, in eating those meats, uh, whether or not uh, brothers who attended those feasts, those public feasts that sometimes the uh, idolatrous temples would have, inviting the public to come and partake of those meats and uh, come inside the assembly of the idolatrous worshipers. And they were concerned. Uh, some of the weaker brothers had fallen away and it had become a great concern to the church at Corinth. And so they had written Paul this letter. And as we review today, uh, what we uh, studied last week, we began with this letter, of course, and it asked Paul several things. Could a Christian enter an idol's temple and participate in the feast and uh, perhaps get a free meal or take some food home? Could a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols that were sold in the marketplace? Oftentimes, these meats were divided up between the priests uh, and the one who was uh, offering the sacrifice and they would take it home to their uh, own homes and partake of that or invite friends in. Or sometimes they would sell it in the marketplace because being sacrificed uh, to an idol uh, was considered to be very prime meat and it sold for a higher price. Thirdly, could a Christian participate in a private feast in another's home using meats sacrificed to idols? Well, there were problems related to eating of meats, as we discussed there in chapter 8, going through verse 13. 
And one of them was that just simply knowing that when you offer a sacrifice to an idol, uh, it's not really a god. There's only one god, and, and that is Jehovah. But some of the weaker brethren, uh, having not grown very much from their uh, new creature status, might be affected uh, by those who knew uh, the truth, but yet still attended those things and giving the impression uh, that it was okay. Uh, Paul will later address today uh, this idea of going into an, uh, a temple of idolatry uh, and appearing to worship that idol is not a good thing. It is sinful. The second thing, as we, we said there in verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6, there's but one God, and he is to be worshipped, he's to be obeyed. <clears throat> and then Paul talked about the uh, limitations imposed, because there are some weaker Christians th uh, there in verse 7 through 13. We looked at what Paul said about sacrificing some of these liberties that we have. Uh, if it's going to offend the conscience uh, of a weaker brother and cause him to sin when he violates what he believes to be uh, wrong. And so Paul said in this giving of sacrifice <clears throat> that if eating this food or eating meat makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so while some things uh, may be questionable, uh, we need to make sure that if we're causing someone to stumble by what we do, uh, we need to be careful. And we always need to be aware that if there is a question among the weaker brethren as to what we are doing is right or wrong, certainly we should teach them. But certainly uh, we should abstain from those liberties, even though it may be right for us to do it. Paul sets the example by saying, whatever it is that cause or may cause my brother uh, to stumble or to violate his conscience, then I need to not do that and I need to abstain from that. So as we go into our lesson today, we're going to look at chapters 9 and 10. And I think I can get all of this in, but we may have to pick up next week if not. But I want us to understand that chapter 9 is the same thought. <clears throat> Some people have uh, looked at chapter 9 and said, well, Paul's taking a break from talking about meats, and he's talking about the preacher's pay. No, he's continuing this thought of giving up certain liberties, for certainly Paul uh, and all of those who had taught uh, in Corinth and elsewhere had a right to receive support. It's not uh, a going back by any, uh, any stretch of the imagination. It's simply a continue, uh, continuing thought of the thoughts at the end of chapter 8 uh, that we just saw on the slide. So Paul emphasizes that we uh, must not abuse our liberties. Uh, to cause others to sin. And so in chapter 9, he gives this look at his own conduct and what he has given up uh, to forgo some of the liberties that he certainly was entitled to for the sake of the church at Corinth. And so if we were going to divide this uh, lesson up uh, for chapter 9, we might say that 
verses 1 through 23, Paul gives his own life as an example of sacrificing uh, his rights and things that were acceptable and approved for him. And then in the last three verses, 24 and 27, Paul talks about self-denial as a condition for salvation. The whole chapter, uh, chapter 9, is addressed to the strong brother who abuses his liberties uh, to destroy the weak. And so we begin uh, our study today looking at Paul's own life as an example of sacrificing one's liberties. Paul had a right to monetary support or support of those things that he needed while preaching the gospel, and he makes that clear uh, from verses 1 through verse 14. And he made this point to demonstrate that he willingly for, uh, chose to forego the use of his rights in this matter. Paul had the right to support, but he chose not to accept it, and he chose deliberately not to accept it on behalf uh, or from, rather, the church at Corinth. Uh, he mentioned other preachers. His first point is that he's an apostle, verses 1 through 6. He was an apostle of the Lord. He had seen the risen Lord. God had appeared to him, you remember, on the road uh, to Damascus. Uh, Christ had taught him concerning the Lord's Supper, concerning all the things that he needed to know in order to do the work, what he needed to do to be saved in order to uh, do that work. And furthermore, uh, the church at Corinth, uh, the Corinthians, they were his work in the Lord. So if others doubted his apostleship, number two, the Corinthians shouldn't because they were the seal of his apostleship. He'd manifested signs of an apostle among them by performing signs and wonders and mighty deeds, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. They had been the recipients of those things that he had given unto them uh, through their obedience and through their uh, faith. And Paul said that he and Barnabas had the same right uh, to support as the apostles and the gospel preachers uh, of other congregations, verses 3 and 5. So he called also uh, their attention in supporting not only the preacher, but also the wife, a sister uh, in Christ. Uh, at the church, church's expense, the preacher, just like uh, Peter and others, had this right that they uh, could carry around as they traveled uh, their wives. And it was the practice of Peter and, and some of the Lord's brothers. Paul and Barnabas had the right also to forbear uh, working in order to earn their living uh, from the church and through secular employment, which is what uh, Paul did. He was very clear to make that known not only to the church at Corinth, but also to the church at Thessalonica and others. So when we look at the preacher, uh, the preacher has every right to uh, be supported, and he has the right. Uh, to receive whatever monetary uh, needs that he has, and also those of clothing or food or whatever. And so from verses 7 through 14, Paul teaches them uh, this right to support. He starts an extensive argument to demonstrate this right. 
And here are the main elements. First of all, a soldier receives support while he's at war. Uh, I never missed a paycheck, uh, no matter where I was in the world, or uh, no matter what I was doing uh, for the military. And a preacher is a soldier. He's a soldier in the army of the Lord. He is a leader. He is out front uh, preaching and teaching and uh, helping care for the spiritual needs uh, directed by the elders and the spiritual needs of the congregation uh, to provide that nourishment. Uh, the second one that he mentions is the husbandman, husbandman or one who has a vineyard. Certainly someone who's a farmer, uh, whether he raises vines or not, uh, has a right to his crop and he eats the fruit of his vineyard. Uh, those of you who have gardens may be like Young and I. We enjoy uh, before a meal going out and picking some fresh tomatoes or, or uh, picking whatever fruit it, or vegetable is uh, there for us to eat. And while we may sell some of that to support ourselves, we don't. Uh, but we enjoy uh, the fruits of our labors. And so the preacher has that right too. After all, he is uh, teaching the word of God. He is teaching the gospel of Christ to gain more vines to the true vine, Jesus Christ. And then he mentions the shepherd. The shepherd, of course, he says in verse 7, eats the meat. Uh, that is the butter and cheese that's, that's made from sheep's milk of the flock. And he's entitled to that. He has worked and labored with those sheep to produce these wonderful and tasty uh, items uh, to not only support his body, uh, but also he could sell that and, and uh, support himself but as the shepherd of the flock, as one who is a spiritual shepherd, not an elder, although a preacher can be an elder, uh, he has the right to support because he is helping uh, the elders to nourish the sheep and to feed them and to water them. And fourthly, the law of Moses teach, teaches uh, in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4 that Paul uh, quotes in verse 8 through 11, that thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. That ox is going around and around and around, and he's threshing and grinding uh, wheat to eat, and he eats a little bit of that. There's no denying that. Uh, he's working hard. So's a preacher. It's a general principle in these four items that the laborer is worthy of his hire. It wasn't limited to God's concern about the cow that, or the ox that's walking around and around, pushing that stone and grinding wheat. Uh, it was for the preacher, for all laborers, to include the ox as well. And so Paul had sown spiritual things, which was the greater blessing, and he had the right to expect to reap carnal things the lesser blessing. He had the same right to receive support uh, that others had taken. Verse 12. Others had been supported by the church at Corinth. If you go over to 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and look at verse 20, uh, others had received support from Corinth, but he had the same uh, right to do that 
but he had foregone uh, this uh, support. Priests, he said uh, in verse 13, priests eat the sacrifices at the altar. Both uh, those priests of God, uh, the priests uh, under the old law, and also the pagan priests, they uh, took part of the sacrifice that was offered. Uh, that which was left, and they took some home for themselves, and the one who offered the sacrifice took home some for uh, their own selves. Jesus had ordained that they which preach the gospel, in verse 14, should live of the gospel, and that means they should reap uh, support if they needed it, and they desired it. In Luke 10 and verse 7, when Jesus sends out the 72 uh, by 2, he says, In the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. So yes, uh, sometimes when preachers come for meetings, we invite them over to our homes and we're glad to do that. And we share a meal and we support uh, their being away from home and take care of whatever needs they may have while they're with us. Paul had that right. They weren't beggars. They weren't uh, paupers who just, uh, that was their job and uh, they're not supposed to get pay. And there are a lot of uh, congregations who debate this, how much to pay the preacher and whether he should be paid at all. But chapter nine is the basis for us supporting preachers and those who labor in teaching and preaching the word. Well, Paul decided he wasn't going to take uh, any of this from the church at Corinth. Uh, he states more fully his principle guiding this decision. He'd made a conscious decision, I think we can say. He had decided that he was not going to accept their support. I think even if they offered it, he'd not uh, written what he'd written in chapter 9 verses 1 through 14 to ask the Corinthians all of a sudden to start supporting him. He wrote it to defend his uh, decision to forego uh, this exercise in teaching us that there are some things we need to forego. In verse 15, Paul says that he'd rather die than to lose his grounds for boasting. He was under special uh, circumstances. He was preaching because the Lord had asked him, commanded him rather specifically, to preach. And so therefore, in verse 16, this necessity to preach was laid upon him by the Savior. On that road to Damascus, he told Paul what he must do to be saved and also gave him a divine commission. For he says there, I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of these things which you've seen and those things in which I will appear unto you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I will now send you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And he, he made that statement as he was recounting his uh, being with Christ in Acts 26, verses 16 through 18. He wasn't disobedient to this uh, heavenly vision, but he gave his life in order to fulfill it. 
And we read about all the things that he suffered, uh, both <clears throat> socially and spiritually and physically. Paul preached because the Lord told him to preach. And he preached because he loved the Lord. And he had, uh, he had no cause uh, to glory uh, in anything. For woe, is, woe unto me, in verse 16, if I preach not the gospel. Uh, he wasn't upset with the Lord for telling him to preach, but he felt it was uh, a wonderful thing. And he says, woe to me if I, if I don't preach the gospel. In chapter 9 and verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Well, Paul accepted that a dispensation or a stewardship had been committed to him. Uh, and he felt he had to discharge it. He accepted the responsibility. How about us? Do we accept the responsibility that Christ has given unto us? To be ready to tell people why we have such joy in our heart, why we have hope in the midst of such desperation, why we have joy in the wake of violence and all of the things that we see today going on around us. But if he served at his own expense and without compensation, Paul felt that he was doing what Christ had wanted him to do. It was voluntary service to the Lord, and thus he could do that. And his cause for glory would never be taken away from him, in verse 18. Consequently, he was willing to forgo this liberty and to be supported by the gospel. And his guiding principle is noted here, for though I be free from all men, yet I've made myself a servant to all, that I might gain the more, in verse 19. To the Jews, he became a Jew. That is, he uh, respected their customs. For example, he circumcised Timothy because he worked among the Jews in Acts 16 and verse 3. When he was working with those who were not keeping the law, he lived like them, not insisting that they com uh, comply with the statutes of the law of Moses. He wasn't under the law but under the law of Christ in verse 21. Paul's supreme goal was to live as inoffensively as possible in order that he might win souls to Christ. What would we do to win souls for Christ? Well, we need to be certain that the things we do are done with love and with respect for others' consciences and to respect those who are weak and esteem them more highly than each other. <clears throat> I couldn't help but dwelling on this thought as I was preparing for this lesson. We have a vertical responsibility to love God. And we pretty much keep that in our hearts to do. But God also in the law and throughout scripture says we also have a linear responsibility to love, and that's to love our neighbor. That includes the stranger, that includes the rich, that includes the poor, that includes our brothers, that includes the sinner, that includes every human being created by God on this earth. And so, as Paul said, uh, those who are weak, 
I need to become weak as well. And I need to help them understand. And I need to bring them along to make them stronger. And part of that is sometimes forgoing things that we're allowed to do under the law. And so he chose to forego uh, his liberties in this matter. Why? Because he wanted salvation. There was another reason. He says in verse 23, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker thereof with you. It was both for the weak and for the strong. Paul wanted every uh, brother to remain strong, but in that strength, not simply take a knowledge uh, of the law for granted, not merely taking this knowledge of what is uh, good and what is bad uh, without reference to the weaker ones who may not be confused over this uh, idea or the situation and to consider them and forego that. And so Paul begins to talk about in the latter part uh, here of the ninth chapter, self-denial is a condition uh, for salvation. In order for it to take place, sometimes we have to deny ourselves. We have to forego uh, that which we might like to do because it might be a stumbling block for others. So Paul here compares the Christian self-denial for the hope of salvation to that of an athlete competing in the Olympic Games. And those of you who play sports or maybe those of you who participate uh, in watching uh, sports, Paul uh, loved uh, to use athletic metaphors and examples. And here he's using one in which he compares uh, one getting ready for the Olympic Games. Uh, and it does take a lot of training. Uh, just in the military, I was by no stretch of the imagination an Olympic uh, champion, but I, I did run and I did exercise and I did all sorts of things to prepare myself uh, to be able to uh, survive in difficult conditions. And so Paul looks at the runner there in verse 24. He runs so that he can win the contest. Uh, he didn't enter this contest just to, to have fun. He may have, but every runner runs to win the race. And so he has to be, if he's going to expect to win, have some self-control. During his training, he's going to have to abstain from uh, eating certain foods or drinking certain uh, liquids. He's going to have to adhere to a strict training schedule uh, if he's going to win. And so the contestant in the race for the crown of life has to have self-control. And it's taught throughout the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, but particularly in the New Testament, where we also have to have self-control on things that are difficult to control. <clears throat> Excuse me, our tongues, our hearts, our minds, our eyes. And though this runner for the Olympics may be uh, struggling and striving to win this corruptible crown, our crown is incorruptible. And that's what we work to uh, be given at the end of the race. The second uh, athlete that Paul looks at in verse 26 and 27 is the boxer. 
and I enjoy boxing. I, I always have. My dad and I used to listen to it on the radio, and I've, I've been a, a boxing fan. And that takes real training. You have to train your body. You have to uh, get used to being hit. Uh, you have to get used to pain. You have to <clears throat> work at self-controlling your mind to focus uh, on your opponent and focus on what you've learned. A boxer, he says, doesn't beat the air. In other words, a boxer doesn't, he may shadow box, but when he gets in, in the ring, he doesn't take wild punches because he scored on those punches. How many hit? How many miss? But those blows are aimed at winning the contest. So the Christian has to get used to pain, has to get used to being beaten about the body, his spiritual body, and to bring it in subjection to obtain the crown. Otherwise, Paul says, you can become a castaway. You can become one who, <clears throat> though you finish all 15 rounds, or 12 rounds, or whatever the time limit is, at the end, when the bell rings for the final time, that you're not disqualified. Having gone through all that at the end, to only be disqualified. Isn't that a horrible thought? Well, Paul practiced this kind of self-denial, and he urged uh, the Christians as well to do that. So as we continue on into chapter 10, uh, we're looking again at the strong Christian and how he's warned to be careful uh, that he doesn't fall into sin as well as causing someone else to sin. And so the chapter, as we look at chapter 10, uh, is divided up into the example of Israel, verses 1 through 13. Paul's warnings not to commit idolatry, verses 14 through 22 and the application as he wraps up uh, chapter 10 in verse 23, and then we'll look at the first verse in chapter 11. So uh, Paul says, as he begins in chapter 10, <clears throat> we need to look back at the Old Testament. We need to look at the example that Israel left for us in the matter of those who thought they were strong and those who were not. Paul suggests and he appeals uh, to the example of Israel to warn those who consider themselves strong to be careful lest they fall. It's a very important lesson, and for any who are listening today who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, who believe that the only thing we have to do is uh, confess Jesus Christ or to be baptized and then stop everything that there's nothing that we can do. If you're a Calvinist who believes uh, in predestination or premillennialism, we can fall. We can live our entire lives believing that we are of God, of Christ, and be wrong. And so I want you, if you're listening today, wherever from uh, the website, or whether you're listening to us on Facebook, I want you to listen to this. And if you have questions, please, by all means, contact me and, and let us know of the questions you have. Israel enjoyed special blessings in verses 1 through 4. Paul recounts that Israel enjoyed blessings that were very similar to what Christians receive. But how many of those 
who left Egypt, some estimate 1.8 million, when it came time, having journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years, how many of them went into the promised land? Two. Many of them never received the inheritance. Jesus has already told us that the way uh, to heaven is narrow. The way to salvation through Jesus Christ is narrow. And Paul uh, looked at these blessings and paralleled them, as we're going to see. All were baptized into Moses at the crossing of the Red Sea back in Exodus, the 14th chapter. They were surrounded by a wall of water, you remember, on each side of them. And so they were surrounded or immersed, uh, so to speak, in this water. It was sort of a, uh, an allusion to baptism. And that their crossing of the Red Sea brought them into special relationship with Moses as their leader, similar to that uh, that we enjoy. As we enter the waters of baptism, we crucify the old man and come up a new creature and put on Christ. Well, they also all received a blessing similar to the Lord's Supper. They all ate of the same spiritual meat. The spiritual meat, of course, he's referring to is manna, that which uh, fell from the sky each morning. Uh, they went out and harvested it, as they were told uh, to do, and they ate. It was spiritual in its origin, not in its essence. And so God gave the children of Israel manna from heaven that fed them throughout this 40-year wandering. Again, back in Exodus, the 16th chapter. Jesus never described it as bread from heaven. John 6 and verse 31 and 35, they all drink the same spiritual drink. That spiritual drink, again, referring to the water that God miraculously brought to them. Two occasions, first at Rephidim in Exodus, the 17th chapter, and the waters at Meribah in Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13, the same occasion where Moses sinned. Paul adds, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. One note of interest here is that uh, many think that this is an allusion to this fable that circulated uh, in the Jewish Haggadah that said the uh, rock rolled around with the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness. Well, that's not likely. Paul saw that the one who sustained Israel was God, who was occasionally referred to as the rock, the rock of salvation, the rock of strength. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, Psalms 18, 41, uh, Deuteronomy 32. They were relevant to Paul's use in describing uh, those who thought they stood on knowledge. And yet, at the same time, especially those who entered into these temples for their free meal and appeared to be uh, partaking in the worship, uh, were sinful and they were wrong. Jehovah followed and sustained Israel throughout their wilderness wa uh, wanderings. And so you can also understand that this identification of the rock with Christ is significant because as we look uh, much later on at uh, Christ and his deity, and we've looked at this uh, on our Wednesday night uh, studies on Facebook, 
that the deity of Christ and his pre-existence is mentioned so many times in uh, the Old Testament that we need to make sure we understand uh, fully when we read the Old Testament that Christ indeed was active in man's salvation then as well. The second thing is most of Israel fell into sin, Paul says in verses 5 through 10. He looks at specific examples of how they had rebelled against God. Uh, and probably he uses these examples because this is exactly what's going on at Corinth. Paul emphasizes, though, that all enjoyed the same spiritual blessings. With many of them, God wasn't pleased at all. Rather, they were overthrown in the wilderness, verse 5. He then adds that these things are left for our understanding, for our examples, to teach us how not to fall in the same trap. You may remember uh, those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it, and over and over God's children fail to receive uh, the lessons and examples that God has left for us to understand. And here, uh, there are several things that the children of Israel uh, were guilty of. Some were uh, guilty of idolatry. And seven, he reminds the Corinthians that idolatry was committed when, of course, they uh, duped uh, Aaron while he was up on the mountain with God uh, to create this golden calf from the gold uh, and metals that they had brought forth out of Egypt. And it was loud and boisterous, and there was much uh, fornication and other things, most of all idolatry going on in the camp. And in their, uh, in their idolatry, they had also participated in a feast, that feast that they were uh, partaking of as they worshiped this golden calf. Uh, it says that they rose up to play, an allusion to their dancing and their nakedness. And so there's no doubt this is an allusion that Paul is giving to remind them that going into uh, being God's people and going into a temple of idolatry and partaking in that worship and the eating of the meats, uh, you're guilty. And you're guilty uh, of fornication as well. As he goes back again, uh, referencing uh, Israel's sin, uh, when the Midianites lured the uh, Israelites into uh, committing idolatry and fornication, using immoral women there in Numbers 25, the Moabite prophet Balaam counseled Balak, king of Midian, that doing this is going to bring Israel under God's curse, Numbers 31 and verse 16. But there is a connection here between the idolatry and immorality. And listen to what Paul says, 23,000 fell in one day as God's judgment came upon Israel after committing this sin. Well, the third thing Paul brings up is some tempted Christ. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 6. When the Israelites became dissatisfied with their manna. And I got to stop and take a breath uh, here because I... You think about that. If you had manna, regardless of how pleasant and wonderful it may uh, have been, I don't know. It, it was uh, described as a wafer-like uh, food that tasted like honeycomb. 
and it must have been wonderful for the first few days as God fed them each morning. So they went out and they gathered it, and it was just as he said. But can you imagine eating manna every day, three meals a day for 40 years, and not complain? I don't approve of what they did. I simply say, before we cast too much doubt on the children of Israel, we ought to think about that as well. But because they complained, he sent fiery servant, serpents among them, and many died. They're complaining uh, about their food and about how God was taking care of them, tempted the Lord. And they did the same thing at, at Corinth. They provoked the Lord to jealousy by attending these feasts in the idol's temple. Verse 22, there's an implication of the preexistence of Christ. Some murmured against Moses' leadership. This refers to Korah's rebellion, Numbers 14. As a result of their disobedience and rebellion against Moses, 250 men of renown died when the ground opened up and swallowed them up. A plague broke out and killed 14,700 others. Paul said they were destroyed by the destroyer, an allusion to God's use of angels to accomplish his purpose. So here we see Christ being involved, the angels being involved, God being involved with those who thought they were strong, who thought they were children of God and could not be destroyed. Take heed lest you fall. Paul said that these examples teach Christians to discipline themselves, to maintain their obedience to the Lord. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the toughness of times and the difficulty of times come upon us, strong Christians turn to Christ for counsel and for strength and for guidance. And so we must. We have to learn that we must be obedient. These things that were recorded in the Old Testament are record for us to, uh, recorded for us to learn from so that we don't repeat. But do we? Well, I have to answer for myself. Yes, sometimes I do, and I have. Not proud of that. But sometimes we don't remember what happened to those who thought they were strong and then took a good look at themselves. And we need to do that occasionally to prevent ourselves from falling back into sin. The generation upon whom the ends of the ages are come recalls to mind that these were at the juncture of the beginning of the Christian age and the end of the law of Moses. And Paul warns themselves, if you think you're strong, you need to consider yourself. You need to consider your ways. You need to take good stock of yourself and make sure that you're not in danger of falling. These strong Christians thought they could go into the temple and get some free uh, meat. They could go in and have a good meal and uh, walk out unsinged. But they got too close to the sin. They were guilty of the sin. They were guilty of participating in idol worship, and they were in danger of falling from grace unless they repented. I think verse 13 has some of the most 
precious promises of our God. The temptations that we face, he says, are common to man. There's, God is not picking on us. Sometimes we think that because things are happening that are not to our liking or we're having a, quote, streak of bad luck, God's picking on us. And he's causing things to happen uh, to us that he shouldn't. But every temptation is common to man. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. From the beginning in the garden until now, Satan never changes, just as our God in his goodness and his love, righteousness and holiness never changes. There's no excuse for one's sin based on the nature of temptation. The second promise is that God faithfully watches over man to guarantee that he's not tempted above his ability to bear. Why? Because thirdly, God guarantees that there always will be a way of escape. Now, I've got to uh, question us. When God offers us that way of escape, how quick are we to take it? Or have we gotten too close to sin and we're standing too close and it's too tempting and so we forsake that and we go for our liberty to uh, do that and be forgiven? Well, that questions whether or not your repentance is true or out of godly sorrow. And we need to be careful. But God watches over us and he's guaranteed that there's going to be a way to escape whether it's the lust of the eye, whether we decide to turn around, whether we decide to flee uh, that thing that's causing our eyes and our hearts to sin, whether it is cutting off our uh, view of whatever that is, the pride of life, whether it is to stop seeking the almighty dollar, the gold piece, the great power of a certain job or position. There is a way of escape, but whether or not man decides to take it, that's another question. We'll always be able to bear those temptations when they come if we seek him first. Paul said, secondly, that we need to flee from idolatry, and they did too. Chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. He instructed them, uh, and you remember also in chapter 8, to flee, to run from it. And he mentions that again here in chapter 10 and, and verse 14. Going out of this idol's temple, flee from it. Run away from it. If that's what you have to do to get a free meal, or that's what you have to do to eat meat, is to participate in uh, idol worship, then you need to get away. You need to run away. You need to stop your eyes from seeing uh, and dwelling on those invitations to go and, and worship at the public assembly. It's idolatry. And he lists the following parallels uh, to these things. The Lord's Supper. We're going to look next week more at the Lord's Supper and how they had perverted that. But here in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, this cup of blessing is a communion with the blood of of Christ, this fruit of the vine that we take. The bread, he asks, is it not communion with the body of Christ? 
Not only what does one commune with the Lord, but we also, around the table, spiritually, we have fellowship not only with Christ, but with each other. And we're doing it uh, all around the world on the first day of the week, where brethren meet to remember Jesus Christ as he ordained by drinking of the cup, eating of the bread. And this great communion uh, takes place uh, between us and Christ, us and each other. And so those who partake of the Lord's Supper have this wonderful fellowship, and they are partakers. It's the same thing if you partook of a supper uh, in this uh, house of idolatry. You are partaking. You have fellowship. Secondly, he mentions that the Jewish feasts also compare to this, going back to the Old Testament. He goes back to uh, the worship, the divine worship of God in the Old Testament. When a person offered sacrifices upon the altar, uh, not all the meat was consumed. For you read there in the law uh, that the priests took a part of that, some of the fat and some of the other parts of the meat, and some of it, uh, the one who brought it, would also take home a portion. All of those who ate of the sacrifices partook of the altar, and therefore they all had fellowship with God uh, there at the altar uh, where it was made. So yes, going into the temple of worship and eating those things, uh, worshiping uh, with those people in these public feasts was sin. Thirdly, he says, Gentile worship. Uh, is parallel to this in verse 19 and 20. Yes, Paul knew that there's no God when you worship uh, idols. If you were to bow down to Buddha or uh, one of the idols of saints or one of the idols of Christ on the cross or one of the idols uh, in any form, uh, you are taking fellowship in worshiping uh, that. But of course, they said, well, there's no God involved, so what harm does it do? Well, God's, uh, Paul says, false worship is offered to demons in verse 20. He doesn't wish any Christian to take part in this idolatry. And he concludes that a person cannot maintain fellowship with the Lord and the devil at the same time. Verse 21, I agree. To enter into an idol's temple is to provoke the Lord to jealousy. I'm a jealous God. I will have no other gods before me. Does anybody in their right mind believe that you can withstand the wrath of God? Verse 22. And as we close, uh, we want to look at the further application of the principles uh, mentioned uh, at the end of chapter 10 and the first part of uh, the 11th chapter. He uh, completely and totally forbade the Christians to enter these uh, temples of idols, to participate in their feasts. And Paul only has uh, their souls in mind and their relationship to God. They have gone beyond what they should have known uh, was wrong. And so he's going to cover just a few uh, matters here before he finishes. The guiding principle must be uh, the pursuit of those expedient things that edify or build up, not only to oneself, but also to that weak brother who may not know any better. 
And when he sees you uh, doing something that he feels is wrong, uh, and certainly going into the temple was wrong, but when he sees you eating meats and other meats, his conscience is that uh, it's a sin. And therefore, if we convince him to override his conscience uh, without understanding uh, and him coming to the understanding, then we've caused him to violate his conscience. And that is a sin as well. So Paul says there are a couple of things you need to understand as he closes. First of all, eating meat sacrificed to idols in one's home. A person ought to eat what he buys in the marketplace without asking any questions about it. The whole earth belongs to the Lord, and the Lord created all things to be eaten with thanksgiving. And it's okay. And it can be used by Christians. But he says, eating meat sacrificed to idols in another's home uh, is a little bit different there in verse 27 and 30. If a brother invites uh, one to a feast, you ought to eat what's set before you, he says, without asking wh where it's from. Did you ever do that? Did you ever go to someone's house and they've got chicken and dumplings uh, and all sorts of good things? And you say, hey, where'd this chicken come from? Or did you say, this is really good and I appreciate your hospitality and your kindness? Well, whether or not it was sacrificed to an idol in those days was a concern. And he says, if somebody invites you to their house, just don't ask a question about it. Because if they tell you uh, that it's from uh, the worship of an idol and this person is a, is a weaker one, then the Christian who's invited into the home ought to uh, forego his liberty to eat it uh, and abstain lest uh, he give the impression to the brother, uh, well, it's okay to uh, worship idols. It's okay to eat uh, this sort of thing and cause him to violate his conscience. He has to be concerned about his brother's conscience. But why would you bring something up like that, Paul says? Don't, eat, don't ask, just eat it. And so use your liberty in such a way that you edify your brother, that you teach your brother, that you bring the weaker brother along in love and in the desire to teach him uh, and to bring him along to uh, maturity. And so in his conclusion of this topic, verse 31 and then on into chapter 11, Paul says that whatever conduct one follows, ought to bring glory to God. And one should conduct himself so that he doesn't give offense to the Gentiles, to the Jews, or to his fellow Christians. He should willingly forego liberties for the sake of winning more to Christ. And finally, there in verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, you need to follow my example. Why? Because I follow Christ. Can we say that? Can we tell people, you need to uh, follow me. You need to look at me as an example. But why? Because I try to pattern my life as Christ. Because I live as Christ lived. And I want to teach you. We need to have love for our brethren. That was not necessarily so here at the Church of Corinth. As we conclude, I think that it's good to look back at these three uh, chapters 
and understand that because we know right from wrong, because we know certain things, they may not always be true. We may not always know what we think we know. We may not always be as strong as we think we are. And therefore, we should take heed. We who are strong, we who believe we're strong, lest we fall. I hope this has been beneficial to you today. Look forward to studying the Lord's Supper and other issues next week. Go ahead and please read ahead chapter 11. We'll be discussing that if God gives us the time uh, next Sunday. We hope you have a pleasant day and may God bless each and every one of you.